0: for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Judges uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, "'I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land "'I had promised to your ancestors. "'I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. "'You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land.' You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord let's pray Lord you are so faithful and gracious to lead us and yet all too often we fail to follow and go our own way forgive us for doubting you for doubting your provision and failing to trust that you are good and know what is good and best for us help us to daily align ourselves under your authority Please guide Pastor Jeff by your spirit as he teaches us this morning and cause us to be responsive to what we learn from this portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Vic. Good to see you all this morning. I wonder if I have David Barnes in here. Come on up, David. Give him a hand as he comes up. David is one of our missionaries that we support here for Christ, through Christ Community Church that uh, all of us support, and he is currently stationed in Thailand, and uh, he is working on Bible translation there, very important ministry for the Lord to get the, get the Bible in native languages and, and do all that, and so we're going to pray for him today. How you doing, David?
0: Good. Awesome.
1: Great. We're going to pray for him, and we're also going to pray for Thailand because they have a horrible air quality right now just due to uh, fires and things like that. So let's pray for him. Father, we just thank you so much for David. Thank you for his calling and his faithfulness. And God, we pray for his protection. We pray that you would watch over him. We also pray for his effectiveness, that as he he puts his hand to the plow, and God, as he, he engages in ministry, that he would be part of bringing many people to the Lord through through your word. And we pray for that. And God, we also pray for this region right now, where He's stationed. We also pray that You would just send the rain, send the rain, God, and let all these fires calm down and the smoke uh, sort of blow out. And we pray for that. And we pray for receptive hearts there. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Good to Thank see ya. You. Good to and you're also invited to an update about David's mission in Room Twelve. So if you, if you, again, if you feel Uh, Like you want to go and and be encouraged about what all the Lord is doing there through His ministry, we encourage you to do that today. Well, we're continuing with our series called God is the Hero of the Story. This is a study through Judges. And uh, so the book of Judges really covers about 410 years, about 410 years Uh, Really, it's divided up into three parts. This book is divided up into three major sections. The first part is in chapters one and two. And so chapters one and two describe the failure of the Israelites to drive out the remaining Canaanites, all of those Canaanites that remained after Joshua. So Joshua has died. As we learned last week, his elders and the judges that followed Joshua and were equipped by him, they're now passed off the scene. God has called Judah to lead the charge to go first up, to go up to battle first against the Canaanites. And it really describes their failure to do this. Uh, Part two is chapters three through 16. God calls these judges and it tells the stories of the judges who leave Israel worse than they found it. They leave Israel worse than they found it. And just as a side note, if you lead anything, don't leave it worse than you found it, right? That's lesson number one. Okay, so if you take nothing else away from this series, remember that. Uh, part three is a two-part epilogue, chapter 17 through 21, in which uh, the, the, the book describes the depths to which Israel has now fallen in sin. So it describes really a horrendous state in which they have fallen into civil war. It's very bloody. Uh, so some features of the book. Well, the first thing you need to know is that the book is brutal, Brutal, folks. This book definitely gets a PG-13 rating. Um, we start with the assassination of Eglon in chapter three, the killing of Sisera in chapter four, the executions of Oreb and Zeb, chapter seven, and then the execution of Zeba and then Zalmunna in chapter eight, and then the murder of sixty-nine of his siblings by Abimelech. Chapter 9, and then at the end of chapter 9, Abimelech is assassinated, and then we have the, the horrific scene of the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter in chapter 11, Samson's suicidal mission to take out the Philistines in 16, and the murder of the Levite's concubine in chapter 19. All in all, there are 79 individuals that are named who are taken out either murdered, assassinated, or specifically killed. They lose their life. 79 individuals in this book who get smoked, right? And so that doesn't even include the, the tens of thousands of people who die as enemy combatants in the Jewish and Canaanite wars and also their internal civil war. So we are looking, by the end of the book, we are looking at a quarter of a million people dead, a quarter of a million people dead. So understand, we are going to encounter some stories here in the book of Judges that if, if you like having your kids come in, your little guys, they do, this is in the Bible, they need to learn the Bible, but just be prepared to have some conversations with them after the services, especially as we encounter some very strange, strange things. So the book uh, is brutal. And this is why the narrative is bookended, by weeping. In chapter 2 and chapter 21, the people are crying out. They are weeping to God because of all of this that is going on. We also see that the author interprets the violence. He interprets the violence. The book is not merely an unvarnished picture of the brutality of this 400-year period, but it's theologically interpreted. The author of the book wants to tell us something about the danger of our idols, the danger of our idolatry. It shows us how we become our own worst enemies, as we watch Israel spiral into one catastrophe after another, each judge worse than the last, each revival weaker than the previous. We learn that our greatest challenge, our greatest challenge, does not lie without outside of us; it lies within. And so, the author intends for us, the readers, to see the consequences of tolerating the worship of false gods, and then going to war with each other, with the family. The final chapters, 17 through 21, highlight their complete and total canonization. Their canonization, assimilation into Canaanite culture, is complete by the end of this book. So now what do we do? What about the background of the book? Please don't miss this. The background of the book, the cultural setting of this book, is the ancient Near East. We call it the A and E. It's the ancient Near East. It is not the modern West. So, as we encounter very strange things in it, you and I are going to be very tempted to read it from the perspective of the modern West. But these people aren't Western. They don't have our values. They're ancient. And so as we come across some of these very strange things, we need to understand this is just part of their world. This is a world without representative democracy. It's tribal, it's quite literally tribal, led by chiefs, tribal chiefs. It is a world without an egalitarian free market. Women and children are just property. And apart from agriculture, textiles, sheep herding, tribal leadership, or being a warrior, a combatant in the military, there are no other jobs to be had. People can't just wake up one day and say, I don't think I wanna be a slave anymore, I think I wanna go work at Walmart. <laughs> because they don't have Walmart, they don't have that. There's four jobs, and those are the four, the four I gave you are the ones. And so understand, this is why you will see odd things like concubines, and slaves, and household servants, and daughters that are sold for a bride price. The the book of Judges is not dealing with the world as it ought to be. It's dealing with the world as it was. And what God is doing, the Bible is progressive revelation, so what God is doing is is He's taking this world, He's starting with where they are, just like He does with you. He starts with where you are, and then He takes you where He wants to be. He's carrying us along to where He wants us to end up. So the Bible, understand, doesn't approve of everything that it records. And there are some things you're going to come across even today in this message where you're going to see the Bible records it, but that doesn't mean that Yahweh was approving of it. God wasn't approving of it. So the cultural setting is the a e Understand that the theological background of the A&E is idolatry. I mean, that's their world. That's the air they breathe. Idolatry comes in two forms, polytheism. The Judeo-Christian faith is monotheistic. Monotheism just means, mono means one, theistic means belief, belief in one God, right? And so polytheism is the belief in many gods, poly. And then you have henotheism. Henotheism is the belief that one of those gods has been strong enough to rise to the top of the hierarchy. He's the top dog god. And so you'll come across Baal or Asherah or Marduk. And so when you come across these kinds of of gods, con- this is what's called henotheism. It's just the belief there is one top, top god among the gods. This is their world. In the ancient Near East, this is the air they breathe. Understand that idolatry in the ancient Near East is directly tied to ethnicity and territory. So in this world, you can only worship the god that's local. You can't worship a foreign god unless you move there and you live there because that's where your god's shrine is. And so understand that, that idolatry is specifically tied, it's inextricably linked, linked with this idea of ethnicity and territory. If you are a Canaanite, this just is your God. The, these are your gods, Baal, Asherah. If you are an Israelite, this just is your God. It's Yahweh, and this is his sacred real estate. This is his territory, right? So understand, when you come across things in the story that look like a command for ethnic cleansing they're not it's not a command to ethnically cleanse anything or anyone this is ethno-religious meaning god is not commanding them to commit genocide god wants to save the nations but before he can save the nations he has to save one nation he has to save israel from idolatry and until he can do that, he can't save the nations. God has already told Abraham and God has already told Moses, I want to save the nations. It's part of his plan. But he has to save this nation, he has to save Israel from its infidelity and its idolatry. Understand that the theological message of the book is Israel's evil and idolatry is contrasted with God's holiness. So, the first thing that you see, the first theological message that you see in this book is however bad they get, it just serves to highlight how great God is. It just serves to highlight just how holy and righteous of a God we serve. And understand also that Israel's infidelity to Yahweh is contrasted with God's faithfulness. God is faithful to his promise, God is faithful to his word, he's faithful to his covenant. So, however, unfaithful they become just highlights all the more just how good God is God is faithful and even when he has to punish them and sometimes he just has to punish them he's sustaining them he's preserving he's preserving them he's carrying them along to the next chapter and the next chapter is their salvation and doesn't he do that with us don't you find that's true about God in our lives as well no matter how bad I am, understand God is still holy, and sometimes my evil serves to highlight His holiness, just how holy and righteous He is. So God is holy, and God is faithful. So let's pick up chapter one. What do we learn from this chapter? Chapter one picks up the story. Of Joshua passing and, and shows uh, Joshua's passing, and he shows us the fault lines present in a post-Joshua era. The fault lines are already present. And the first thing we see in the first half of chapter one is that Judah and Simeon, those two tribes, they have some initial success. So God chose the tribe of Judah, and then Judah enlisted the help of his brothers. You know, that tribe enlisted Simeon to come and fight for them, and then what Judah says to Simeon is, hey, listen, when when you guys help us defeat our Canaanites, we'll come down and help you guys defeat your Canaanites. Look at chapter one, verses 16 through 21. 21. And the descendants of the, of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went out and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother. These are two tribes now. And they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited uh, Zephat and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was, was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country and, and he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said back in Deuteronomy. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now this is a scribe writing this in a next generation and he's reflecting on the fact that they didn't do this and look, the Jebusites are still there. They're still in Jerusalem up to this day. So generally we see that Judah and Simeon, those two tribes are making headway. They're making an effort to finish what Joshua started And to obey the calling that God has given Judah. And so there's some initial success here with Judah and Simeon and Othniel and Caleb. And some of those actors, some of the players here, they're experiencing some initial success and they're making headway. And listen, if the rest of this chapter were like the first half of it, this would be a very different book. This would be like Joshua the sequel. It would be that good, like it would be so encouraging. If the rest of this chapter were, were like the first half, this would be a very different book. But it isn't, it isn't. The remaining tribes of Israel compromised. The remaining tribes of Israel, instead, they compromised. They were supposed to drive the people out, drive out their false religion and their pagan practices of immorality get these things out of the land, get these things out of Yahweh's real estate, get them out of his sacred space, but they didn't do it. And so we see their failures. Their failure really takes on two forms. The first one is they failed to rid the land of idolatrous worship by removing the idolaters. And so the first phrase that we're gonna see in the rest of the chapter that's repeated often is this one. They did not drive out the inhabitants. They didn't do it. And we see this in verse 21, 27, 29, 30, 31, 33. They did not drive out the inhabitants, which means they did not drive out the idolatry, the idols that these people had. The Benjaminites epitomized this failure. Verse 21, again, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with those people in Benjamin, uh, people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, again. They just refused to obey the mandate. And how did they do this? They cohabitated with the Canaanites by enslaving enemy combatants. This is the second phrase you're going to see repeated in this last half of the chapter, verses 28, 30, 33, and 35. The Canaanites served as forced labor, enslaved so, as a result, Israel failed to drive the Canaanites out of the land, disobeying Yahweh and attempting to enslave them instead. Now, they were not commanded to enslave them. Sometimes skeptics come to this chapter or come to a book like this and say, See, the Old Testament endorses slavery. They were under no command by Yahweh to enslave these people, they were supposed to drive them out. It's exactly not right. Verse 28, it says, when Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. In other words, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And this is a direct violation of Moses' command in Deuteronomy 20. In Deuteronomy 20, Moses tells them explicitly, do not take slaves. He says, with respect to the cities in Canaan that God gave them as their inheritance, that's the context in Deuteronomy 20. Moses says this, you must completely destroy them, that is, drive them out, the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you so that, here's why, so that you won't, they won't teach you to do all the detestable things, the detestable acts that they do for their gods, and then you sin against the Lord your God. So taking these people as forced labor and allowing them to cohabit in Yahweh's sacred space is a direct violation of Moses' command because these people living in the land will teach Israel to worship their false gods and then teach them all the detestable practices that go along with that. As we look through Judges, we're going to see exactly that. When you see Jephthah, That story of Jephthah, you think, this guy's awesome, and then he vows to sacrifice his daughter, and he does. That's a Canaanite practice. That's not a Jewish practice. So we're going to see these things in the story. And then we witness the results of this. Number three, Israel experiences the consequences for their unfaithfulness, I want you to see that judgment is not merely punishment in the form of God withdrawing his presence from their battles. It's also the judgment of their ignorance. They become maleducated. They become illiterate about their faith, and this is part of their judgment. Now, we encounter here in the first verse of chapter 2, we encounter the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Many theologians, including myself, I would agree that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is what's called a Christophany, a Christophany. What does that mean? That means a revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. So it is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Why do most of us think this? I'll tell you why. It's because the angel of the Lord has two different, there are two things that are very different from about him. Uh, from, that distinguish him from other angels in the Old Testament. The first one is he receives worship. He receives worship. And the rest of the angels in the Old Testament insist that people like Daniel and others should never worship them. I'm a created being just like you. Well, the angel of the Lord receives worship. In addition to that, the angel of the Lord does not speak on behalf of Yahweh The Old Testament God, he speaks with God's authentic voice. You're going to see it right here. We see right here in verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed me, my voice, my voice, What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. So this judgment will plague them from this moment to 160 BC. We typically think of the Jewish faith as being monotheistic. They were commanded to be. They were supposed to be. But, but pretty much their entire ancient history leading up to 160 B.C., that's 160 years before Jesus was born, 164 years before Jesus was born. Jesus was born in 4 A.D. Figure that one out. But 160 years before Jesus was born, uh, they had a revolt. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. You can read about it. You can Google this. That's where they became strictly monotheistic. Up until that moment, the Jews had flirted with polytheism and idolatry their entire history. And they had become exiled in Babylon and Persia because of it. They finally come back in the stories of Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah, and they still struggle, even after they rebuild their temple. Understand what the angel of the Lord tells them right here, this judgment is going to be true of them, leading all the way up to the time of Jesus, just about the doorstep when the Messiah would be born. And so, folks, I think the lesson we take away from this is this is literally the most dangerous thing that could ever happen to you. What? For you to be without God. For you to fight your battles on your own. For you to wake up one day in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s with a cancer diagnosis and realize you don't have a church, you don't have a community, you don't have faith in God. And to go it alone. It is one of the most dangerous positions for us as human beings to be in, to be out there all on our own facing these battles and not having God fight them for us. So if you're an unbeliever here today, I implore you, don't be an unbeliever anymore. Come, come as you are. Come to faith in Jesus. So God says through the angel of the Lord, I'm not going to fight your battles anymore. And then look at the next judgment. This is judgment two. They become ignorant of their faith. So in addition to to God withdrawing his presence, which is the consequence of their national illiteracy in biblical and spiritual matters, we also see see their their illiteracy. Look at this, Judges 2.10. This is the whole generation. This whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. So Joshua passes away. That generation passes away. And they are gathered to their ancestors, which is, a, which is a glowing comment on these people going to heaven. And after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. So they got a knowledge problem. They don't know. Chapter 3, verse 7, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God, and they worship the Baals and the Asherahs. So the very thing they were supposed to do, they were supposed to know the Lord, and they were supposed to remember all that he had done in the covenant, they forgot. They forgot, and Moses had told them, this is how you remember. Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through 10, it's called the Shema. The Hebrew word Shema just means hear, listen. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk with, uh, of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There is no place in your life where talking about the word of God is inappropriate, it's always appropriate to remind yourself of the covenant, to remind yourself of the word. That's what Moses is telling them everywhere. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And what is Moses telling them? He's telling them essentially just a few things here. First of all, you're the people of the real, true God. God. Hero, Israel, the Lord our God. It starts with a doctrinal claim. The Lord our God, there is one Lord, and He alone is God. God is category specific, He is category unique. No one else belongs in that category. And you're His people. You're the people of this God, and He is yours. He is your God. And they are to remind themselves of these words. Do whatever you have to do to instruct each other, to remind yourselves, and then to pass it on to your progeny. Make sure that they know the Lord and they don't forget. And what do we learn from the judges this generation? They do not know the Lord and they forgot. They forgot the covenant, they forgot the word. In Jesus' day, in the four Gospels, when he, every single time, he is asked teacher, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment in Moses? And Jesus' answer is always the same, 110%. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with everything that you are, and you shall educate yourself. You shall teach yourself. Teach your children, teach each other this word, this covenant. That is Jesus' answer as to the greatest commandment every single time. And the people and judges just forgot it. They forgot it. And then unfortunately, they suffer the consequences of forgetting the word. And we know what happens when they fail to do it. Moral and spiritual madness follow. So what's our application as Christians today? Well, the first one that I can see here is that we measure success by our faithfulness, not our intentions. You measure your success by your faithfulness, not your intentions. They may have intended, they start out with good intentions, Judah, a few of the guys, they want to do it, right? And then no one else does, but they don't follow through. Jesus tells us a very interesting parable, one of the most important parables for us to learn, and that's in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, he tells us the parable the parable of the household managers. It's, called, it's also called the parable of the talents, but it's really about the managers. And so he tells us this story. There's a story about this rich man, this wealthy guy, and he was deciding he was going on off on a long trip. He was going away for a long time right? And so while he was away, he wanted to make sure that his estate was managed well. So he got his three household managers, and he divvied up his assets among the three. So the first manager got five talents, and the second manager got two, and the third one got one. And after a long trip, he comes back to settle accounts with the managers, and he asks the question, what did you do with what I left you? And and the one who had received five talents said, look, master, I took your five talents, I invested them, and here are five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. The master says, you've been been faithful over a little, I'm I'm going to entrust you with much. And then the one who had received the two talents had the same response. "Here's Here's the two talents you gave me, and I made two more. And he gets the same appraisal. The same praise from the master. Well done. You've been faithful with little. I'm going to entrust you with much. But the one manager went out and hid his talent. He buried it in a safe in the field. And when the master called him to account, he said, Master, this this was his excuse. I was afraid of you. I knew you were a harsh man. And so, and I was also, I was afraid I was gonna lose this. So, what I did is I buried it in the ground, and here you go. Here's Here's your one talent. And what is the master's response? You wicked, lazy servant. Calls him evil and calls him lazy. He said, You could have put it with the banker and at least given it back to me with interest. And what is Jesus trying to say to the disciples whom he has just given the gospel trust? And he has just told in chapter 24, I'm going away for a long time. What is he trying to tell them? I expect you to make good on what I've given you. And when I come back, you better have some disciples. How many churches today are closing, even in our own town? Who, they're just running out of people. And on that day when Jesus returns and he says, what did you do with the gospel trust that I gave you? And they said, well, here are our 10 original charter members. They're in their 90s. Aren't they wonderful? I'm sure they are. But where are the other ones? The point is that you and I must be faithful with the gospel trust. This church must be faithful by making disciples of the nations, making disciples of the people who don't know Jesus. We must be faithful with this trust. And in this parable, Matthew 25, don't miss it. Faithfulness is fruitfulness. Faithfulness is equated to productivity to investing everything we have for the gospel so we can bring more. But what's going to stop us from doing that? Number two, we must refuse to compromise our faith. There are many churches today, if I may be honest with you, they are closing their doors, even in this town, because they become woke or affirming. If you don't know what those words mean, please go on our website, watch our podcast. We have talked about it ad nauseum, the pastors but they've just allowed the worldview of the culture to seep into the church. And and, and they teach all this nonsense that's out there in the culture that there is no truth and there are no such things as men and women, male and female, that white people are inherently racist because of their privilege and all kinds of other just crazy stuff, look, listen, and they've gotten off track and they don't have a gospel anymore to preach. Why, why do they have no disciples? Why have they not multiplied the talents, the trust that they've been given? Because they haven't preached the gospel. They compromise And If we learn anything from judges that God doesn't tolerate compromise. God doesn't tolerate that. He expects us to be faithful. He expects us to be faithful. Listen, the more evil the world around us becomes and the more pervasive that evil is in our world, the more atmospheric it becomes, the more it's just out there in the ether, it becomes the air that we breathe, and we can't help but breathe it in, but we must, we must choose to stand on the word. It doesn't mean we're not kind. It doesn't mean we're not going to be gracious. It doesn't mean we're not going to extend the mercy and be the heart and the hands of Jesus. We surely are, but we're also going to stand on this word. Jesus judges the church. You don't think he does that? Let me ask you this. What is the last book in the Bible? Revelation. Revelation. Written by who? John. John. Yeah. What is the book of Revelation about? It's about Jesus. That's right. It is about Jesus. We tend to think, well, you you talk about Revelation, you mention that word, and you automatically start thinking about end times theories. I know I do. But, But if you read that book, the first three chapters are not dealing with the future. They're dealing about right now the seven churches of Asia. And the seven churches of Asia, and Jesus says something like this to every one of them with the exception of one, the church in Philadelphia. He says something like this. Listen, I praise you for this. You you stayed true on this, but I have this against you, right? You tolerate the practices, the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. You tolerate Greek philosophy. You tolerate all these things. You brought it into the church, and, and this is what Jesus says. So if you don't clean this up, If you don't get this compromise out of my church, I'm going to close your church. That's what he says. I'm going to remove your lampstand. The lampstand is a symbol of the church. He says, I'm going to remove it. So understand, God has called us to be faithful, and we constantly run the risk of compromising our faith in terms of our doctrines and our values and we do it through cohabitation. We do it through cohabitation by allowing the thoughts and ideas and the value system of the world to just take up residency in our thinking. Listen, I think about the value system of the world and our culture all the time. I think about it a lot, but I think about it in light of scripture. I think about it to confront it with the truth of the word, and that's what we're called to do. Number three, we must face the consequences of our failure with confession and repentance. So when we do fail, and we, when we do trip, and we do stumble, and we sin, we must face that with confession and repentance. Let me lead, read you the last verse here in this section up to verse 4. It's Judges chapter 2, verse 4. So the angel of the Lord has come, and he said all of this. God is saying, I'm withdrawing my presence. I'm not going to fight your battles for you anymore. This is going to end up in your ignorance, your lack of knowledge about your own faith, In verse 4, he says, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. They just started hollering and weeping and crying and crying out to God. How sad that they don't do that again in the entire book. 400 years until the end of the book when they're crying out again for deliverance, for salvation. Folks, let's not wait 400 years between our confessions You confessed Christ as Lord. You confessed your sins when you got saved. But I think what John is trying to say here in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Has God forgiven you? Yes, he forgave you at the cross. You're forgiven of all your sins, but we also live in sanctification, which is God's saving grace to change us. And we come to Christ and we confess our sins. Why? So that we may be washed clean and then also sanctified. Sanctified. The two things we need more than we need anything else is forgiveness and sanctification. We need that more than we need air. And then repentance. Repentance is produced by godly sorrow. It's okay to be grieved over our sin, 2 Corinthians 7.10, this is what Paul says. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret and no resentment, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow is sharing God's grieving heart over our sin. That's all it is. Confession is just telling God what God already knows about us. It's just saying what is already true. What God already knows is true. But repentance with godly sorrow is just grieving over our sin the way God grieves over it. And so we ask God for forgiveness, and we repent, and we turn and walk the other way. And that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. And this is what was missing here. It, 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 this is what they had when the angel of the Lord made this announcement, but they didn't have it for another 300, 400 years, man. Let's be quick to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. Let's be quick to repent and turn away and walk to God, not away from Him. Not, not away from Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for this powerful word. We thank you for this book that from our Western and modern perspective seems a little messed up sometimes. But we thank you for leaving these stories here, which are not whitewashed, they're unvarnished, and they're instructive, they instruct us. And the first thing they tell us, God, is they just tell us just how holy and righteous you are and how far we have fallen as sinners. And they also tell us how faithful you are And God, when we need to confess and we need to repent, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us and move us along to the next chapter in grace. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. And if you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning and you've been struggling and you recognize this morning, you've been trying to fight the battles in your world all on your own. You don't have to because there is a God who sent his son to die on a cross for your salvation. And you can come to the cross right now and experience the forgiveness and the grace and the sanctifying work of Jesus. You can experience it. And you can do it right now. If you would just put your trust in Jesus for your eternity because he can get you where you cannot get yourself. He can take you there. You can't take yourself. He can save you. You can't save yourself. Would you just trust in him? If you're a believer and you're here this morning and there's sin in your life and you need to confess it, this isn't Communion Sunday, but really every Sunday is. Because we commune with the Lord by the Holy Spirit and you can just confess your sins this morning. Confess them. And God, we do just that in Jesus' name. Amen.